Welcome back to Liminal Frames, your interdimensional spectacle dealer where we try not to make too much of a spectacle out of the phenomenon. Uh, I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and co-conspirator, Darren Exo Academian. Darren, happy, I guess we're almost toward the end of the week here. Uh, how's it going? What's going on with you? Uh, spring is on the way. Today was a beautiful day here. I don't know how it was for you, but I really enjoyed stepping outside and taking the stroll. Neon fan, it was a great day, wasn't it? <laughs> Perfect cabin. So for people who don't realize, you know, Nathan's always posting these like this AI art and he really seems to prefer like neon colors. So I thought Neon Nathan would be a good nickname. Then I thought, wait a second, I've got Exo Academia. So I mean Neon Than or something like that would be like you know, his moniker. What do you think? Yeah. I think it's fantastic, and uh, I couldn't help but respond today with a little bit of a Tron inside joke. Uh, a great movie, by the way, Tron, and also uh, the more recent Tron. And I heard they're even going to make a new Tron. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I've always been a fan of neon uh, and also like psychedelic colors. They're just, you know, that kind of vibrant energy speaks to me. Uh, so yeah, uh, I started a thing called Wallpaper Wednesdays now. So every every Wednesday, I'm just putting out some phone wallpapers. People need some fresh paint on their phone, so you can pick that up if you follow me on Twitter. Uh, I take care of the art, and you you take care of the the, the deep thoughts. That's kind of how it's been going lately. <laughs> That's right. So it won't be a surprise to people that the the bright colors that are part of the Liminal Frames logo and uh, artwork was also from Nathan. Those are his. Go-to colors, pretty much. Man, it's hard to go wrong. I mean, you can't beat a good purple and, and green, man. Uh, yeah, that's been a whole fun journey, the AI stuff. And uh, I feel like, uh, just like a lot of folks, I'm part of that AI trend right now. It's everywhere. You can't uh, turn around without bumping into some sort of GPT of some kind. Uh, and it's a, it's a strange place to be. But also an exciting time. Um, but But... A time sort of ripe with a ton of uh, potentiality and uh, just sort of like the potentiality that exists inside the atom, right? We know it can be really powerful and good and it can be incredibly destructive. So that's sort of what I'm feeling lately. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You and I have been talking about this for a while now, just how, you know, many people are still unaware of how much this is sneaking up on us like this. Uh, you know, this sleeping giant that's quickly waking up and the way that it iterates so quickly and the way that it's so um, spreading into our society and sort of every industry you can imagine, not only how disruptive it'll be to to economies potentially, because we don't really plan these things ahead of time, right? When you have a free market system, again, this is one of the weaknesses of that, is that when you have real systemic change like this, there's there's no capacity to uh, prepare for it, really. And even if you did try to, you know, hold hearings or something and begin to walk through the red tape of thinking about how we should actually regulate AI, by then it's like, you know, pro probably you're in like Terminator territory kind of thing <laughs> where it's, it's too late. So like you said, it's interesting looking back at our history, you know, even for our age group and sort of realizing there's been these different technologies that every time they roll out, people were like, this is bad. You know, this is going to be the end of society. Other people are like, well, this is real opportunity for growth and change. And and both of those are true. And it's true here as well. Like AI, by the way, people, the show is not on AI, but we just, we've got a lot here. These are things Nathan and I have talked about recently, just how, 
it is it does hold great potential to transform our society. Many of the ways that you know communist and socialist ideals in the past have always failed because you get the human factor that comes in that's always corrupt and um, inefficient and uh, you kind of get the in crowd that looks out for themselves over and over again. Here you have the potential to really just run pure computational power at this thing and, and solve some major global issues potentially, even in some ways that we don't necessarily understand how it gets to the answer because it kind of accesses these kinds of questions from like a multidimensional kind of matrix. And, and yet on the other hand, because of that, by that very notion that we don't know how it gets there, we could hand it certain questions and it could take, go in directions we never planned for, even quite, you know, even directions that may be uh, detrimental to our, the survival of our civilization potentially. So these, well, we're not even exaggerating that this is not sci-fi, you know, uh, Saturday or something. Uh, this is, this is real issues we're facing. And as Nathan and I were talking about before we went on the air tonight, I don't think it's even a, a coincidence that this is happening in the midst of this sense of something with the others going on in our midst. There's there's so many things going on in the world right now that make it seem like we really are on the precipice of something major, whether it's you know the potential of nuclear warfare because things are really ramping up and we seem to have a new Cold War kind of brewing with the positioning of different groups and different uh, nations. And some of these is a lot less clean than the old Cold War, right? Um, and on top of that, you've got, you know, biohazards. We look back at what happened with COVID and that kind of thing and how that could be weaponized. And many people having, you know, concerns that that was part of a weaponization of these kinds of things. Uh, then, you know, you've got the war in Ukraine and Putin becoming more and more cornered, you know, like an animal that um, really sees no way out. And, and on the one hand, certainly he's committed some war crimes, but on the other hand, when you corner an animal, you, you give it fewer and fewer choices. And this is an animal that's sitting on the button to, you know, detonate nuclear weapons. So tricky, tricky times. And then when you add to that the sense that so many experiencers that I'm talking to are having the sense of something major with them being in the midst. And this also relates to what I've been talking about in recent podcasts, just how there's this sense of these two factions and something happening in the world and when you look at the, as we said before, went on the air. When you look at the situation, take the others out of it. You just look at the situation. It sure looks like a powder keg that's just waiting to uh, to blow. Yeah, it makes me think of that game from uh, childhood, the musical chairs, right here. Uh, you know, put the kids in the room. You know, take one chair away from the number of kids that are there. You play some play some music, and they walk around the chairs, and you stop the music, and everybody gets to sit down stays in the game and the person that didn't get to sit down, they're out till eventually you get down to that last chair. And I don't know if you've ever witnessed this uh, or remember it from your childhood, but it gets really violent when that last chair is, is in the room and, and there's some, you know, come to blows. The chair sometimes explodes because people were getting onto that thing so fast. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very tenuous time. And I think with AI, it's not really too far to say that, that we're dealing with kind of alien intelligence and as you said the inner workings of it uh how it arrives at its conclusions you know we may not be able to comprehend that and, and there's a lot of i think there will be a lot of calls to say well we need to understand this better how do we understand this how does it do what it's doing we need more data we need to get 
you know, scientists and academics to kind of study this more intently and figure out how it's doing what it's doing. And, and I think we're reaching a point where even that effort might not be able to, to understand it, to comprehend it. Um, and, and I think that's a great parallel to sort of what we're dealing with more broadly with, uh, the non-human intelligence from the phenomena, uh, what it is doing, uh, what it means. And, and there are a lot of calls recently for the same thing. We need better data on the phenomena. We need uh, more sensors, uh, more analysis, more PhDs. Uh, we need it to be taken more seriously. Because if we can just throw enough knowledge, academics at whatever this is, well, then surely we're going to figure it out. And by figuring it out, we'll have a semblance of control and mastery over it. It's, it's worked for us before, right? We, we've uh, discovered there are these things called germs, and by uh, throwing our scientific effort at germs, we've got a little bit of a handle on how they, how they work and understanding that washing your hands is a good idea. Uh, you know, nevertheless, germs are still there. They're still killing people, right? So uh, understanding it and, and, and stopping it from doing whatever it may do it are two different things. Uh, but we want to tackle this issue of, uh, and I think that the, the, this premise, right, that, that we can understand the phenomena through the means that we understand everything else that happens in our world today, uh, through the means and methods of, of uh, materialism and, and physicalism and, and the scientific method. You know, are these the tools that are, the, that are going to work in helping us to really get our arms around what this is? Or is it something beyond that? So what are the, the benefits of that approach and where does it fall short? Um, where, where do you start with that? Well, a couple of things come to mind. One is that, you know, I, I um, am friends with um, and in association with a lot of experiencers. And I think from our perspective, this is a uh, an opportunity to be vindicated in, in front of the public eye, right? To actually have people who are respected as being able to determine whether or not these things are quote unquote real, come in and apply the scientific method, run some experiments, prove quote unquote that it's real and that it's not something conventional or prosaic. And in so doing, vindicate people who have spent decades and decades either experiencing ridicule and scoff and questions about their mental health, or they've had to just stay in the shadows and not talk about it because they know darn well that's what they'll run into. So even just today, I uh, was dialoguing with someone on social media who for the first time has come out and talked about the experiences they've had, and they're in their 70s now. This is the first time in their lifetime they've done this. And even then, they talked about basically being in tears as they pushed, you know, send on that social media post, right? Because they, they know what, even today, what that means, right? And, and there's so much emotion wrapped up in decades and decades of having these experiences and not having any place to talk about them, to um, digest and, and work through them, right? So I, I think about that when I think about this push for academic involvement, I think there's also people on the nuts and bolts side, so not so much experiencers, but the nuts and bolts side, who in their own way are convinced something's going on, that there is a there there, you know, as we say. They they know that going back to Roswell before, there's there's just been a massive cover-up 
Therefore, they believe the evidence must exist, and maybe they have not gone too far down the woo road yet, so they think that academics coming in is a great idea, and this is going to be our Shangri-La moment, where we we suddenly, it's that it's in their mind, it's just about getting academics involved, and once that happens, then everything else will follow. But perhaps that's a bit naive. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, a lot of things come to mind. Uh, Skinwalker Ranch, for example, all the experiments and uh, technology that are thrown at that uh, mysterious place. And uh, if you've watched the show, which I encourage folks to see, I think it's entertaining and and interesting, fascinating. But many times uh, bizarre things happen and they're non-repeatable things. It's like, well, you know, it's messing with our instruments in this way and it's totally messing with them in this other way. And, And we can't quite pin it down. We can't get that reproducibility that we crave with our scientific uh, approach to understanding things. And, and I think about the, the work of Jacques Vallée, of course, uh, where you know he and uh, J. Allen Hynek uh, took scientific approach to this and you know kind of came away many times scratching their heads. Uh, I think about how Putoff and uh, you know and the work that he did, uh, many similar examples of it just being really confounding and not adhering to the rules, right? It's sort of like you get in that situation where you're trying to play a game with someone. You're like, here's the game. Here's how here's how the rules are. And they like just ignore the rules entirely. And they're like, I win. And you're like, no, no, but you're not playing the game according to the rules. So you're literally, you're not playing the game. You're doing something else. And, and that's kind of where we are. It's sort of demanding that reality as we experience it conform to our, uh, our notions of what is possible to, to our possibility space. Um, I also think about the recent um, paper that was co-authored from Avi Loeb and uh, Sean Kirkpatrick that a lot of folks got pretty upset about because the bounds of the possible were were quite narrow in that paper, uh, even though it has been the source of a lot of clickbait articles about motherships and our solar system and things like that. Uh, but But the possibility space of what alien technology can do was... Uh, confined to essentially the things that we think are are the are the limits of physics and uh, folks who have had experiences of this technology or even looking at incidents like the Nimitz of course the the, the famous incident there uh, will we'll say well then how did it do that you know if it's doing that and our sensors are saying that and the witnesses are saying it's doing that then clearly something is happening outside of the bounds of what we would consider to be uh, possible. And so, uh, you know, again, we've just got many examples here of, of the limits of our understanding and, and I think the frustrations of our, of our attempts to understand this and, and pointing to, to what we've been hinting at here. And that's just, just throwing academics at this may not necessarily yield the results that we want. And is it going to come down to needing that kind of proof to, for people to take it seriously? Like, is the world going to need academia to say, well, yes, we have reproduced this and therefore it is real? Or is it going to be, uh, is it going to sort of transcend that or exceed the, those bounds and create something new that is maybe a kind of fusion of what we understand science to be, but also uh, to some degree what we understand things like mysticism to be? Yeah, great points. I have several things occur to me. One is that the reason why I think it's misplaced um, hope to suggest that 
academia is going to come in and number one, be able to reproduce it. That's our first question, right? The second one is, even if they could, how much would that really change things? And the reason I bring that up is because there has existed pretty compelling evidence from parapsychological research for going back like 150 years, is even going back prior to the quantum revelations, right? So, and yet it really hasn't changed our society. Most people that you talk to in the public believe in some sort of psychic capacity, right? But it doesn't doesn't really filter into the way academics think about these things. It has not ca caused the revolution that it should have. So I think that's the first thing I point out to people is the evidence alone does not necessarily change these human institutions even ones that supposedly are supposed to be about pursuing truth, that even while we want to look back at religious history and say, you know, in the medieval world, the church had its grip on, on reality and they could define the reality model of the day. And that was, you know, passed aside and eventually overtaken by this scientific revolution, which is all about this pioneering spirit of what is, is, and we will just be completely honest and forthright about this, and we'll go anywhere the data takes us. Gosh darn it, you know, all of that's a bit naive. Like there's definitely, that's the spirit of science, and there are many, many scientists working with that hope in mind, that that underlying set of principles in mind, and yet, you know, human nature just gets in the way, right? Even when we mean well, it just gets in the way, partly because we've been We've evolved in such ways that we, we do make assumptions all day long. We have to make assumptions just to get through the world because there's so much data, we would be completely overwhelmed if we didn't make assumptions. But because of that, and because physicalism is the dominant paradigm and has been for several hundred years, it makes it so that we these, these assumptions just never get questioned, right? So that's another thing to bring into the mix is what assumptions are baked into any dominant paradigm, whether it was the Catholic Church and you know several hundred years ago, or it's physicalism today in the Western world? These are things to think about. Another thing that occurs to me, going back to that 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 the um, the paper put together by Kirkpatrick and Abilob, is that we were talking about this before we went on the air. It's it's like so Star Trek. It's right, right like you know, mothership comes in, sends out the scout probes that go down to the planet. They do some stuff, they go back up. It's, it's like almost like Battlestar Galactica from the 70s. Like it's so, it's so like traditional sci-fi, right? Uh, that it's kind of laughable because the reality is, as we've talked about many times, these things have been here longer than we have, right? So it's it's not even, this notion even that they're coming to our planet is, is laughable, right? It, they were here long before we were. It's not our planet uh, by any stretch of the imagination. We have all sorts of evidence pointing to, and I've seen evidence suggesting that, you know, they have bases in the ocean, right? And that it's not coincidental that we see them going in and out of the ocean so many times. It's because they don't have to go back to a mothership, you know, uh, somewhere else in the Milky Way. They they have bases right here, right? Even the moon is is hollow and there's things going on there, right? People have suggested this for a long time. I would say that's true. So these are all things that kind of make laughable this notion that the mothership is like, you know, docked and then, uh, you know, you've got these scout craft coming out. But getting beyond that, I think it would be helpful to first identify what, what is the scientific method, right? What are the assumptions in science? 
And to what degree can that apply here, right? And I think there's different directions we want to go, but we really want to, first of all, I think, be clear about what it is, right? And then, then think about the nature of the phenomena, right? And the phenomena, as you rightly point out. And, and how much is that the kind of thing that can apply in these circles? Because one thing, I, again, I was saying to you before I went on the air, is that science can only answer scientific questions and not all questions are science questions. So let me mention some things here and we can sort of bounce off it from there. So one of the assumptions of science is that one is determinism, right? The assumption that all events in the universe, including behavior, are lawful or orderly. The second assumption is that this lawfulness is discoverable, okay? Quick aside there, by the way, that's very interesting because as much as science was in many ways trying to stand against what they saw as the irrationality of the church, when you think about these kind of terms, right, lawfulness and order, it actually arises out of very early science, which came out of Christendom, where there was a sense that there was this you know, God at the center of the universe that set forth these eternal laws, and it was those laws that governed the natural world. So it's very interesting how you still see that kind of language baked in to scientism, right? Very, very interesting. And let me say three other things. So again, this is about the assumption. Nature is orderly, and the laws of nature describe that order. Number two, we can know nature. Number three, all phenomena have natural causes. We assume that nothing we see is unnatural. If it occurs within nature, then it is a natural occurrence. And if it's a natural occurrence, we assume that it obeys some natural law and that by observing it, we can learn about it. And then the scientific method, how is that defined? The basic process involves making an observation, forming a hypothesis, making a prediction, conducting an experiment, and finally analyzing the results. And as part of that scientific method and running these experiments, you have the independent variable, which is, is changed during the experiment, right? This is the thing you're trying to toggle to see what kind of effect it has. Then you have dependent variables, which is what's measured during the experiment. When I change this one thing, how does it impact this other thing? Then you have the controlled variables that stay the same during the experiment. And then finally, you conduct the experiment several times to make sure the results are reproducible and not random. So that's what we're talking about in terms of what people hope that academics are going to apply here, right? And so then that raises the question, to what degree does the phenomena that we're aware of and that is attested to in the literature fit within those parameters? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, well, a lot of things there. I uh, I think about the conception of of sort of god being this the watchmaker right that there's and like you said that there's this inherited order to the process that, that came from this conception of of the divine kind of ordering everything that there is and and setting it into motion and, and kind of stepping away and just letting the 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 clock do its thing uh but every gear being specifically designed and to, to you know tick at a certain interval, et cetera. Uh, so that that conception very obviously has been borrowed, uh, which makes sense, right? That those who grew up uh, and became kind of the first pioneers of the scientific method, let's not forget the 
the world in which they found themselves, the world in which they were born, was steeped in that kind of conception, uh, which is also quite old. Uh, you know, the, this notion of laws, immutable laws, and, and order. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that they would take that understanding and and kind of take God out of the equation, uh, and then just put themselves into that blank spot, right? Um, the one, the watchmaker. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I certainly think about that. The other thing I think about here is something that we've said before many times, and that's, uh, you know, sort of not confusing uh, the map for the territory, you know. So, um, and here, you know, I'll use a little different example. You know, we all are familiar with kind of the classic uh, lab rat maze experiments. You, you put the rat in the maze and you, you know, kind of let it do its thing. And you're studying its behavior, how it reacts to certain stimuli. It's looking for a treat, for example. But it's essentially saying, well, the maze is, in fact, reality the way reality actually is. It's confusing the maze for the way things actually are in the world at large. Uh, the maze is very uh, carefully constructed, crafted, ordered, uh, etc., and obeys very specific kinds of rules, uh, and the world at large isn't like that at all. Uh, there are many, many, many more variables than, than that. Uh, they're at play in the maze. And uh, to be able to take learnings from the maze and say, well, the world is just like this is, is, is a bit of an assumptive leap, right? It, it's, it's, not, it's not to say that there isn't some degree of correlation. And I think that, that the correlative power is, is very, you know, it's, it's, it's immense, right? We've seen a lot of instances where science has been able to reproduce things through the scientific method and apply them at large, and it's very, very powerful. Um, but just because it can do that doesn't mean that it that, that that's actually how reality works in the broadest sense of the term. It just means that we've gotten really good at that one sort of manipulation. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, those are the things that kind of swirl around my brain when I, when I think about this issue that uh, that that it that there is a benefit to doing it, to applying the scientific method to the phenomena, and I, I think we should, and we are, and there are people who are doing that. But my worry is is that the the tools that we're bringing to bear on this just really aren't the right tools that will ultimately help us understand what's actually happening. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, we might we may not have the tools or ever have enough tools to really get our arms around this, at least in the lifetime that you and I consider to be, you know, this incarnation of our human experience. Right. And what I think of here is, is, you know, the fact that most of the general public is going around assuming that we have most of the laws, quote unquote, of nature figured out. And we're just, you know, polishing at this point, right? Just a crossing the T's and dotting the I's, which again, we've talked before about the irony is that that same sort of hubris was in play prior to the quantum revolution, right? Really, people really thought that it was just, you know, fine-tuning the details, the fine print, but everything else was pretty much figured out. So when people talk about academics coming in, they assume, again, that we have a mostly complete model of reality, and therefore, finally, we can see how the UFO phenomenon fits within it, right? 
But as you pointed out, there's a big difference between being able to observe how nature behaves, what we call nature, versus what nature actually is underlyingly. And what science does really well, what the scientific method does really well, is it begins with some assumptions, and then it says, what can we play with here in terms of the variables to produce a certain outcome? You can do that without having any idea of actually what is underlying, underpinning all of those variables, right? You could, before someone had ever heard about a waterfall and rain clouds and precipitation uh, and this sort of convective way that, you know, climate works on the planet, well before knowing any of that, they could see that, hey, if we go downstream, we can gather water, right? So you can observe that behavior and, you know, you can say, hey, it's a good idea to like build our village right here by the water because it gives us so many things that we need for, for life and even for conveying things along when we need to send it downstream. But you can do all of that and have really effective, you know, changes to your civilization as a result without really understanding any of the mechanisms that provide that water to begin with. And that's kind of what we're doing. And on top of that, because that's all we're really concerned about, that's what really most people are concerned about is how does it change our lives? And if it makes our lives better and easier, then, hey, you guys are like the new priests, you know, like you're, you're in charge, you're doing a good job. You say it's because there's a physical reality that underpins everything? Works for me because, you know, I've got a microwave oven and a cell phone and blah, blah, blah. But of course, those questions are very much in play. And not only that, but there's mounting evidence, and there has been for a very long time, that actually physicalism as a final fundamental model is flawed. So that's very, very interesting in terms of the timing here, right? Because we're talking about bringing in academics to see how the phenomenon fits within this model when, you know, secretly behind closed doors, people are saying, well, the model is flawed. You know, the model is actually not tenable. So see what I'm saying? It's kind of a weird erosion happening from both ends. Um, you know, and then you've got you've got some things that you can actually can test. I want to make this clear. Again, parapsychological research. You know, Dean Radin and Ions has done some great work in showing how you can make a prediction, you can set up an experiment, and you can demonstrate it, right? Again, what's what's shocking about that is that there's the evidence exists and yet it hasn't really eroded our faith in physicalism, both uh, within the scientific community and with the you know society at large even though it should have. So these are some things to keep in mind before we even get into what I think we'll get into next, which is what are the actual things we notice with the phenomena, right? What kind of um, observations are made? What kind of experiences do people have? And how might that or might that not fit well with something you could test in a lab kind of situation? Yeah, and, and along those lines, I... I think here too about the very, the very personal nature of the experience. Uh, that it's, it's not like the experience of going to an ATM machine, right? Which, uh, but for the kids around here, an ATM is where you go and you put in some numbers and a card and you get something called cash. It's made of paper and you carry it in a wallet and you pay thing. You use that to pay to buy things. Uh, nobody uses that anymore. But every time you use an ATM, it's the same experience, right? It's it's they punch in, they put in the card, punch in the number, get the cash, and walk away. That's pretty much it. 
But the nature of the experiences that we hear about with the phenomena are not at all the same, you know, from person to person. Uh, and there are many, many factors that go into that. Uh, the the feelings are not the same. The uh, the reported experience or, or uh, resemblance or whatever it is, their experience is not the same. And it kind of begs the question, and we've touched on this in, in different ways, and that's, you know, what what's really happening here and is it is it something that we can uh point to in the way we could describe atm machines or is it something that is meaningful and designed in its very nature to be meaningful only to that person uh it, it's it's a lot like the way to uh i'm gonna take a little bit of a tangent here but growing up being the son of a minister you know i would sit in inside church week after week and listen to sermon after sermon and and my dad i thought was an excellent preacher uh and he is uh but one of the beautiful things about the sermon if you hear good preaching is it's not necessarily what is in the sermon it's what it elicits in the listener it's the experience that is evoked by listening to that sermon and of course, you hope that it translates into some change in that individual's life, right? And so I think a lot of the phenomena, a lot of the experience that we hear about is much like that. It is, it is uh, evocative. It is not necessarily uh, designed in a reproducible way because it, 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 it's, it's spontaneous and responsive to who that person is and who they are in that moment. Not only in that moment, too, we've talked about this quite a bit, but even throughout the course of their life, right? So it's that funny way that time works where you can re-examine an experience 20 years later and say, aha, this is what it really means. I needed to live this part of life to fold that experience back in and really understand what it was about. Uh, it, but it also meant something to me when I was 20 just as much as it means something to me now that I'm 60. And it's richer for it, both both then and now, right? You see what I'm saying? Like it's, it's a di there's a dynamism to it that doesn't exist in the kind of linear, neat packaged way that our, our scientific experimentation typically functions. Indeed. And what you just talked about there reminds me of my discussion about Jacques Vallée's control system hypothesis in the most recent episode of Point of Convergence, because he made that very point that the question about the, the reality of UFOs kind of misses the point. It only needs to be real enough for people to believe it's real, because if the ultimate goal is to change behavior, so taking his notion here that this is about, on the most macro scale, some sort of other intelligence or groups of intelligences trying to mold our civilization, trying to evolve our collective consciousness, then really the reality of the tools they use, the mechanisms they use in order to accomplish that goal kind of is secondary, right? The main point is how do you do it in such a way as to mold the, the trajectory of the civilization? And so his point is that we shouldn't ask whether or not UFOs are real necessarily what we should ask is, are they real enough to change behavior? And let's take it beyond UFOs. Let's go back into religious history, right? And and even things like fairy lore, which he, again, has done a great job in that kind of comparative analysis with medieval fairy lore in Europe and 
you know, ancient religious traditions. And in each of those cases, let's look past the, the superficial veneer and ask, what was the nature of the experience and how did it change behavior? How did it even change that group's understanding of what reality is, right? And what they should do and how they should live. These are the kinds of questions that Valet really brought to the fore. And those, and if that's the kind of endeavor we're talking about here, ultimately, then that's very different than saying this is some sort of natural phenomena, right? Because again, this is the, the, the point in science is that supposedly if this, this is happening in the natural world, then it's based on lawful order and we should be able to observe it, make predictions about it and prove its existence and how it relates to everything else in the natural world. But again, I think Valet's work really helped to demonstrate that that makes so many assumptions. And, you know, this brings up to, to, to mind one thing I thought we could get into, and I know that you've read this as well, uh, The Three-Body Problem. So why don't you talk about that book and how that maybe impacts this, this conversation as well? Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, so if you haven't read it, uh, The Three-Body Problem uh, from Chixin Liu, an excellent trilogy. Um, that has also been made into a like a miniseries on uh, Chinese television. Um, so you can think you can find that around the internet if you're looking for it. But um, it plays with a lot of different ideas and themes around you know, what it would mean to be in touch with, you know, non-human intelligence, alien intelligence, and I think kind of challenges some of those uh, classical assumptions. Um, and it plays with the way in which we kind of normally like understand uh, what should happen or what, what can happen um, to the degree that what this intelligence does and does essentially kind of like remotely from a distance and uh, apologies if you haven't read it and don't want to know this is the place to hit the pause button the episode and you know fast forward 20 minutes or something um, but essentially this intelligence messes with uh, the scientists of, of humanity and uh, kind of confronts them and confounds them uh, with with information that just doesn't fit into the kind of paradigm that that they're used to seeing and it often drives them mad basically kind of, they, they, they kind of lose uh, their sanity um, so it's in a way it's almost like a psychic attack on humanity because it, it it's something that disrupts the the ways in which we can understand what is possible or is not possible um, and and to the outside observer, this this appears as madness, right? It just appears as there's some kind of psychosis happening here, and uh, you know th that's all there is to it. But then the there's the as they get savvy to what's really happening, they the kind of powers that be have to make a decision to sort of covertly, uh, you know, sort of uh, respond to this this hacking, if you will, kind of way to think about it, like a hacking of the of humanity. Uh, covertly respond to it by this incredible, like layered secrecy and and uh, separation of intelligences and people who are who are tasked with solving these issues, and because they can't reveal their hand to this uh, this alien intelligence that essentially has kind of omnipresence uh, to everything that's happening on the planet. So there has to be this like coordinated subterfuge uh, so that it doesn't know what we're planning to do in response to it. Um, but it's a great example, uh, again, of what we've been talking about here. And that, that's that uh, the conventional means of 
of understanding and relating to and and uh, counteracting and uh, like all those things sort of fail. And if you continue to try those methods and and get and understand it through those methods, it ultimately leads to madness. And that's essentially what we are seeing here too, and what we've we've also seen with some experiencers, right? Who 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 continue to try to force that experience into a certain box and the harder it is that they force it into that box the more things begin to break and the more that they can't cope with whatever it is that is happening so that there has to be a degree of ontological shock which takes place both on the individual level but there's also an ontological shock that is happening societally right and so i think that that's that there are two layers here we kind of want to think about and that is the individual layer because it is a very personal experience but we have to think about it macroscopically as well. How does the phenomena impact, change, interact humanities on a societal level? And and th- there is an interplay between the two. Um, but 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 it is actively happening on both layers and has to and needs to. And and if we're not going to understand it unless it does. So I think that, that that's a big thing here, right? It's not just like, you know, I went out into the field and I found this rock and, uh, and I, it's, it's a discovery and it turns out it's a fossil. You know, it's a fossil of this creature that, that nobody knew about. And I bring it back to the village and, oh, I'm, I, you know, they name it after me or whatever. It's not quite like that. It has to happen on on that level, but also on a level that impacts that that culture um, and, and, and simultaneously, I would say. And I, I would argue that that is what is happening right now. Yeah, and getting back to the three-body problem, one thing that's kind of introduced to the, to the mix in that book or that series, you say it's a trilogy, is that we assume that there's this natural order that we can measure. And we assume we're so, we're so familiar with, so accustomed to being king of the hill, right, the, the top dog, that we don't really take into consideration nor really test for because we've never had to so far. The possibility that some other influence could actually mess with the variables before we ever get to them, right? And so this, this again, brings to mind what you mentioned earlier with Skinwalker Ranch. And John Alexander coined this term precognitive sentient phenomena to describe what they observed when they tried to follow the scientific method, right? These, are, these were groups of PhDs that got together and designed experiments, exactly as I described earlier, that would present a hypothesis, try to test it, play with the variables, and see if you could draw conclusions about what was happening, what was the nature of this phenomena. But what they found is that not only were variables tweaked before they could even really run the experiment, but that this phenomena, the intelligence behind it, seemed to know what they were going to do, seemed to know how they were going to design the experiment before they even had a chance to run the experiment which also brings to mind events in history, like, for instance, with the Tic Tacs and the Nimitz, how the Tic Tacs seemed to know the rendezvous point before the pilots even knew, and before maybe even the computer had supposedly randomly right, chosen the rendezvous point. So these, th- this shows you just what's in play here. The parameters kind of get blown out, the usual parameters, right? I mean, th- this is what's in play here, is that we assume that reality follows a certain trajectory and exists within certain parameters. 
and we therefore look within that scope. But one thing I pointed out, and I brought it up again in the most recent episode of Point of Convergence, is that it's likely that a group coming here from somewhere else is not going to show up like Battlestar Galactica. That actually, because different parts of the cosmos are much older than other parts, and because of that, you would have had the chance for some civilizations to be considerably older than us. We're talking like in the millions of years at least, right? Potentially. And when you think about, again, how much we've progressed in 100 years, we, we began this conversation talking about AI, right? Computers didn't exist 100 years ago. And yet now it's at the place where it might either solve most of our global problems or pitch us over the cliff into disaster, right? I mean, this has happened in 100 years. So imagine what would happen in a million years or, or hundreds of millions of years, right? Basically, it gets beyond our scope. We can't even imagine at that point. So to assume that these others, if they exist, are going to show up in ways that we can measure through our current contemporary notions of physics is so laughable that I'm just shocked it's not brought up more. You know, it's just it's just the hubris around that. We, we've seen how much our understanding of the nature of reality has changed since the quantum revolution, which was only 100 years ago. So to assume that we have now reached the summit understanding of the natural world and that that natural world depicts ultimate reality on top of that is is humorous to say the least. Mm -hmm. We've talked about privately recently the, the Truman Show, right? And it gets it, it's a good an, an analogy to what we're talking about here because uh, when we're talking about that kind of advancement, it's very likely that everything that we understand to be the case about reality is 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 there by design uh, for us to at least that they're behind it uh, in a sense. And we wouldn't be able to distinguish what would be uh, natural or unnatural or whatever we would, because this is all we've ever known and that they've designed the entire cage. Um, and it's not until the cage begins to fall apart uh, do you start going, wait a minute, like something's off here, something's strange. Um, and even then you're, you're stepping out into a complete unknown uh, when you leave that environment. It would look nothing like what you're used to seeing or, or only approximately like. Um, and this is what we hear, right? We hear from experiencers who are saying this, you know, that that like people who have had NDEs or OBEs, you know, it's it's uh, it's more real than real. Uh, it's uh, there's a clarity to experience that that I haven't experienced here. They don't want to come back into their bodies because it feels like baggage. It feels, you know, just like it weighs them down. Um, and you can understand why, right? If you've had an experience that has that richness and fidelity, why would you want to return to something that doesn't? Uh, and, and you and I have talked about this as well, and that as this notion of time. And we often, when you're young, you think a lifetime feels like forever. You know, you think if oh, if, I, if eighty, you know, that just seems like like you've lived an eternity. But as you start getting closer to that time you realize how short it all actually is. Uh, when you watch your kids grow up in the blink of an eye, you realize it's all so very short. And when you compare that shortness to thing, something like the span of a million or a hundred million years, if you're a civilization that lives or has lived and occupies that space, this little 80-year sliver is essentially zero. It's like a rounding error, you know? And, and it, it, wouldn't it be great if you could condense experience and learning into that kind of tiny little, little sliver and say, you know what, I, 
I came out of that experience and uh, I'm glad I had it because it allowed me to fix this. And well, you know what? I still got some more work to do. Throw me back back in. I'm going to fi- fix it some more. So, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a tangent there, but just I think getting into this notion of scope and scale, it does change the way that we think about the phenomena and the edges, the borders of what we know to be possible. Uh, and, and it should, it should confront us with those things um, because our understanding now, like it, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that the way we understand the world now is the way that it actually is. Uh, yet every generation seems to approach it that way. And I think that, I, I don't know, if that's just folly or we just haven't lived long enough to learn the lessons of, of the prior generation that would tell us otherwise. Right. And to use your analogy of the Truman Show, What's interesting there is that, yes, the revelation is that, wait a second, this is all a setup. You know, this is a a false world that is just about producing this TV show about this guy's life, right? So he thinks that this is all real life, quote unquote, but then he realizes it's all a stage play, basically, for, for people to consume uh, for their entertainment. But in that scenario, he's basically still entering into a larger world that follows the same laws, Right we're talking about here is that the entire thing, even the laws, quote unquote, of nature are part of the stage play, right? And that's one thing that academics are not asking, right? That's not that's not a question in the scope, right? But that's really what we're getting at here. So I wanted to bring up some specific cases or situations that have been observed by experiencers that really do call into question whether or not these laws of nature might not just be part of a rule set of a local kind of virtual or simulated reality or a, a construct, right? So for instance, Joseph Brooks has talked about this this notion of perhaps these craft aren't actually in the sky. Sometimes it's just a virtual uh, representation of a craft or like a virtual reality. So we've talked about this before that sometimes when our technology advances, we go, aha, that's what the UFO phenomenon is, right? So when we had VR come on the, on the on this on the scene, we were like, aha, then maybe that's what that is. They wouldn't go, they wouldn't need to go to the 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 effort of actually constructing a craft and, you know, calling some engineers and some some alien grade engineers put together this craft and send it across the, you know, the expanse of space. They could just project a virtual reality into the sky and that's all that would be necessary. Like a, like a hologram basically, right? Because again, the point being that it's about changing our behavior making us believe that's a craft more than it actually having to be a craft. But it goes much further than that because even Joseph Burks has talked about one time one of the prime contactees that he was working with saw something up in the corner of the room and it was making him tear up. And so Joe Burks had this notion, just to try this, speaking of science, close your eyes. The guy closed his eyes and he could still see it even with his eyes closed. So at first you just assume this actually is a real phenomena in the physical world, right? Because why would you not believe that? Because it's it's showing up just as anything else would in the physical world. But then he finds when he closes his eyes, then it's still there, which suggests that maybe it's being beamed right into his visual cortex or something, right? Rather than having to be a translation of something actually in the physical environment. But again, that, that begs the question, is it even happening at that level? I would suggest it's even deeper than that because that's still working with our understanding of biology and physiology and blah, blah, blah. I think it even goes beyond that. I think that they are working at the the substrate of this deeper structure of reality from which we get derivative things like 
quantum theory and space-time, right? So, and that's partly why we can see what look like violations of of what we understand physics to allow for, right? And even personally, I've experienced this where, and when this happened to me back in 2005, I had, I had researched the UFO phenomenon enough to know that this is something that happens. So it just sort of becomes this anomaly that hangs out in some part of your brain where you go, this thing feel, felt real, seemed real, but then why do these certain things not line up like that? In other words, I had no hook to hang that part of the event. And what I'm speaking to is how uh, my wife of the time and myself both saw this humanoid entity that passed through a wall and back through again. But what was strange was we both beheld it, which I'm very thankful for because that rounds it in reality for you when you can corroborate it with a witness who also saw it. Otherwise, you might think, as I said before, that it was just a dream or some sort of hallucination. But if you both see, it's not likely to be a hallucination. But what's interesting is while we both saw it, there were some slightly different details of what we saw, right? So I mentioned before, there was hair and she saw the hair blowing. I most definitely do not remember the hair blowing, right? So why that anomaly? Like it, it's as if two people can experience something, but they might still get a custom version of that experience. And at what level of reality is that custom experience being provided, right? These are the questions that that come to mind when we think about how is academia going to really reckon with these issues? And let's not forget that our quantum science has already pointed out this same kind of phenomenon, right? The double slit experiment. Uh, you know, you have two observers, one that's observing well, a wave and, and one that is, is not uh, a particle. And... And it's all based on observation, right? Uh, and so it, the, the signs are there, like it, it, and they've been there for quite some time. And, uh, you know, I think this really begs the question, and, and maybe we can spend some time on this, is, you know, what, what evolves in response to this? What, what is the, 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 the new tool set that uh, should be used to apply to understanding this? that takes the, the best things from, from science and the scientific method, um, but adds to it, you know, other elements that, that it ignored and kind of folds them back in so that we can create something new that does provide us with some, some valuable uh, understanding and conclusion. So what, what kind of thoughts do you have along the, those lines? Well, speaking of the double slit experiment and other kinds of experiments uh, that were conducted by quantum physicists, what that seems to be suggesting is that, like you said, that, that observation plays a key role in what ends up seemingly manifesting in, in what we think of as physical reality, which flies in the face of everything we had thought about the natural world before then. We assume that, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there, the tree still falls, still makes a sound, blah, 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 right? But, but this all gets called into question here, which on the one hand, again, speaking of our tendency to look at new technology that we come across or we develop and go, aha, that's what the UFO phenomenon is. So some people jump on the simulation hypothesis, right? And they say, well, you wouldn't render a tree falling in the forest where no one can see it because that's a waste of computing power, right? You'd only, only when an avatar is beheld, beholding it on the level they're on on the screen, do you bother using uh, your computing power to render something, right? Now, that's, that's neat and tidy, but again, I would just suggest to people that that's awfully convenient, that that would mean the UFO phenomenon 
just happens to be, you know, some version of our latest understanding of simulation based on what we've developed with video games and things, right? So again, we're back to that thing about we, we so quickly try to, you know, lump it into whatever technology is cutting edge. And we, we laugh at our ancestors and how they talked about like chariots in the sky, right? I'm like, why do you call it a chariot? It's a UFO, man. But it's because that's the only notion of vehicles they had, right? So what, what else are they going to say? Um, and I would also say that it's hinted at in the quantum experiments in terms of the conscious observer plays a role. But what I would suggest is that when you took it, you take all of this information together, and I don't, I don't just mean observations from the UFO phenomena in history, but also, you know, research is being done in uh, in quantum physics. How people, like I've said many, many times, Nima Arkani Hamed are, are finding deeper structures of reality beyond space time. So they basically are showing that space time. We already know space time cannot be fundamental. Cannot be the foundational model from which reality. Um, you know, manifest. And on top of that, we're seeing signs of beginning to actually test for some structure beyond that, which is very exciting. But what this all gets to, speaking of this thing about the Leia's control system hypothesis, is that perhaps what we perceive as the physical world is actually a construct designed to serve consciousness, not the other way around. And I say designed to serve consciousness because like the Truman Show, you could argue that the entire construct is set up as a school to allow for the evolution of consciousness. So you you set up cause and effect. You set up people walking through a world and making decisions and seeing the consequences of those choices. But rather than those being actually real, quote unquote, it's more like, again, the point being that they learn through the behavior and the felt pressures that are applying to them that we all feel in the modern world, trying to balance various things. All of that is designed to serve the evolution of consciousness, which again speaks to the Lay's overarching theory that he's proposed at different points, that perhaps they have a very specific goal in mind and they do just enough while remaining mostly out of the picture, like the Truman Show, right? He's never supposed to see the people behind the scenes, but it's... They do just enough, the minimal required actually, to over time adjust the trajectory of our entire civilization. So that's what I think I go, well, that's where I go when I think about how consciousness might relate to these others and our notion of physical reality. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, I guess for me too, it, it We've, and we've gone to this territory several times, I think it comes very naturally for us, but uh, a lot of our episodes have a, have a kind of spiritual quality to them. And I think that's because for us, the, the real deep, meaningful insight of the phenomena is this notion of conscious development. Um, and, you know, I think we can come out on that, on that equation being really hard on technology, right? Like saying like, we're missing the point, you know, we're spending too much effort on on technology and mastering the world around us and kind of our fixation on the gizmos uh, while we're, you know, totally impoverished when it comes to our own spiritual uh, development, conscious development. Um, but I think that there's probably, uh, you know, if we're being fair, uh, there's some 
redemptive, meaningful value to learning the lessons of both, right? So there's, there is something to be said, um, and, and this came to me just because you know, what you just talked about, that there's something to be said about understanding how to uh, tweak variables and, and uh, modify a system and you know, create something from what you have at your disposal in order to obtain a desired outcome. And that's what technology is doing. That's what we've become quite adept at doing. Um, so there's some tremendous value in that. Now, if we can just conjoin that with the goals of, of developing our conscious awareness, uh, the breadth, depth, scope of our, of our conscious footprint, combine these two things together, and that's really kind of what you see happening. You know, you, you do see there's this interplay at work between, uh, you know, intelligences that, that, that are uh, kind of pushing us, nudging us in this direction of, of this wider awareness of, of our, our fellow humans and all the other creatures that we spend time with here on this planet and how we treat them, how we treat ourselves, et cetera. Yet also this manipulation uh, of certain intelligences on us from a technological level. You know, you kind of see these things happening in both and from both directions. And I think that's because those lessons are very much at play on every single layer of reality, at every single layer of development for these beings and, and for ourselves. And so we, we carry these learnings with us uh, as we go. And, uh, and we learn as we go too. like, uh, this is the right time to be technological and, and apply a technological solution. And this is the wrong time for that. Like, Yes, we could apply a technological solution. You know, I could make my kid's life a whole lot easier by not having them do, you know, whatever chore it is around the house that I need them to do by just giving them a power tool or something. But it's important that they learn the value of that hard work, you know, because it's, it's developing who they are as a person and their character, et cetera. But you got to balance the, those things. Um, so I don't know. That, that's how I think about these issues. And I think about and how I think about how I would combine sort of the the kind of spiritual uh, value and and wisdom of humanity that we've inherited from our, our four foreparents over many many millennia, and our technological uh, aptitude. Like there's some beauty in having both of these things, and we live in a time where maybe perhaps we, if we're successful, can we, we can really bring these two things together. Yeah, that would be that would be the ideal, and I would say a couple things about that tricky place we're in. But before we get there, I just want to draw people's attention to the fact that if it is the case, going with this notion here, that what we perceive as physical reality and all that entails, being a biological being with, you know, pressures on you and you live for so many decades and then, you know, maybe you redo it again and you you again go through reincarnation and you still have some lessons to learn. So you go through the same pressures, but the whole point of it, just like when you go to the gym, and you face resistance when you're lifting weights, it's to actually grow your muscles. And in a in a vacuum, you cannot grow muscles, right? And so if you think about being in between lives or being not incarnated, right? In a, uh, and a state in between that incarnation, then you can't really grow your spiritual progress because you have nothing pressing against you that you have to respond to, that you have to basically build strength around. So if we go with that notion, and what's very interesting is that we see how, in many ways, it's worked. When you look back at history, if it's true that there's been some sort of control system in terms of an overarching 
collection, perhaps, of intelligences that are trying to tweak things here and there to set the table for us to grow and learn around the things that matter most. You could say that we began as a species who very often warred against the tribe that was just over the hill, right? And we saw them as other, and we saw them as the enemy. Uh, there's even passages in the Bible that you can translate from the Hebrew that actually call those other tribes aliens. Very interestingly, right? Uh, I had a friend in high school had a had a band called Alien and a Psycho, and it was all about this particular translation from the Old Testament. But what I'm getting at there is that we went from, at first, just seeing even the same human group over the hill as something so different than us and so opposed to us. And we had to defend ourselves against them, even if it meant, if it meant like driving them to extinction. We went from that to suddenly realizing, okay, it's not just about my family. It's not just about my tribe. It's not just about my nation state or my religious group. It's really about all of humanity. And then we have this, again, a further expansion of this sphere of concern and care where we go, actually, animals, you know, seem to be living entities with some sort of spiritual capacity, and we should care for them too. We shouldn't just treat them like commodities. And many, many people who think about the UFO phenomenon also think about the others this way. I remember hearing George Knapp talking about when he heard about this notion of this being that had been captured after Roswell, but was kind of kept in confinement. George thought of that as like he, he felt sorry for the entity, right? Because this is what we naturally do. And, and, you know, George is also like me, a vegetarian and really cares about animal rights. Because the point being that this has been the trajectory, that if this is a school, if it's set up so that we learn about these important principles, about who we are and the interconnectedness of everything and everyone, then you could say the experiment's working, right? We are actually learning these lessons where in many ways, I know people sometimes when they watch the news just get bombarded by negativity and, and derision and tension constantly. But the truth is in many ways, it's a, it's a more peaceful world than it used to be, on, and by some measures anyway. And most people consider a much broader sphere in terms of who we should be protecting and who we should be considering when we make decisions. So that's working uh, to plan, you could argue. The challenge, though, is that we more recently, again, because of this singularity we seem to be heading towards technologically that you and I talked about before we went on the air tonight, is ramping up so quickly. And this sheer computational power we're now throwing at it is so robust that we can't even anymore keep up with it or even understand how it's working. We now are at a place where our technological advancement is far outpacing our consciousness advancement. And in many ways, because we've just said, well, hey, this seems to be working, you know, we're, we're applying technology and it seems to be changing our, our civilization, we kind of are not even giving a lot of effort towards spiritual growth or these things that would matter to like a shamanic culture in the past and things like that. So we're really in a, a precarious situation, even where I've heard some people argue that we may be or at an interesting turning point, um, a bifurcation moment where some human beings will decide, am I going to go in the cyborg route or am I going to stay quote unquote human, right? Like, of course, we already have many ways that we already are changed because of technology, but at some point we're going to have to make decisions around how much do we let technology change our biology? And 
how might that even impact our energetic spiritual core by doing that? Because what we're saying here is we don't really understand reality yet. So who knows what kind of deeper energetic structures we might be impacting, perhaps in, in less than advantageous ways, by just putting in a brain chip so we can you know, run a search engine check in our brain when we are thinking about a restaurant rather than having to worry about taking out a phone, right? These are, are really daunting questions that I think uh, our civilization is facing. Yeah, I'm really glad that you went there. Uh, and and you know, the analogy about you know going to the gym, et cetera, is really a good one because uh, you could envision a world where the you have a personal AI, we're not far from this now, and essentially is telling you every how to live every moment of your day for some sort of optimized function. And that optimized function is something that you determine or society determines. Quite frankly, it's, it's there's a you're, you're both determining, you're kind of co-creating whatever that optimization happens to be, uh, or it could be optimized based on the goals of the AI for for everyone. Uh, but essentially, you know, at that point, you're you're just kind of uh, executing its commands, and you're not you've not developed on your own the discipline that you need. Uh, to you know, to, to do these things without its assistance. So it's it's this uh, digital crutch, in other words, um, that in many ways kinds of it kind of stunts you, even though it, it on the surface it, it looks as if it's trying to help you. Uh, and so and we we kind of even see this with some of the accounts of the others, right? Where um, perhaps there's a, a kind of a a grief. Uh, on their part, that they have gone down the same path, and they they lack something that we have. They lack a capacity that we have, and maybe it's a cautionary tale, you know, that uh, that they wish they could turn back the clock, to so to speak, and and kind of do di- differently. Um, but I think all of that is at play. All of that is at play with, you know, in in our understanding of this, with with what what's happening in reality, and that's that. You know, you you get many attempts at figuring this out. There are no shortcuts. Uh, so if if you decide to go this technological path and it ends with the annihilation of your civilization, or it ends with, you know, the robotic automation of every human being uh, into doing a certain thing, uh, there comes a point in time where 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 it's where there's a self realization that that is either beneficial or it's not that beneficial been beneficial for the system, the the larger consciousness as a whole. Um, and so, you know, when we, when we think about, you know, what tools to use, how to approach this problem, how to solve whatever this thing is, uh, I think we do need to step back and, and look at it from that larger developmental lens, right? So it's not just a matter of uh, how can I get some data so that I can then, you know, master this new you know, aspect of reality, but it's how can I understand this and how does it feed into and help with the larger development of both myself as an individual, but 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 the world, right? If we're not thinking in that scope, we're not really there yet, right? Because the, the, the as we've talked about many times, like our as our consciousness develops, our scope broadens. And so if our scope is entirely, you know, narrow to just, oh, this, this scientific discovery or whatever, and doesn't take into consideration how it impacts your neighbor, how it impacts the, the other living creatures on the planet, our ecosystem, then, then you're kind of missing the point. Right. And that brings to mind our overarching question here around 
how much can science play a role here? How much can academia, as it's currently structured, come in and solve some of this and answer some questions? Now, again, one of the assumptions in science that was, again, in opposition to what came before, right, with uh, Christendom, was that there really is just random factors and it's purposeless and there is no teleos, right? There is no sense of this heading anywhere. It's completely random. It's purposeless. Again, this is part of the, the irony of the modern age is we're making it more and more comfortable to have a purposeless existence, right? And we even talk about extending our lifetimes by, while sort of like behind the scenes admitting that we don't think life is about anything, right? So, you know, what are we doing that for ultimately, right? These, these are questions. And so one of the, I think, notions that the UFO phenomena is confronting us with, and not just UFO phenomena, but general paranormality, psi phenomena, is that perhaps actually what we see in these tweaks where we see actually a variable seems to have been changed, that we didn't actually change ourselves. It's not one of these variables that I talked about where we're actually consciously isolating it and saying we're going to tweak this and see how it impacts everything else. It seems like something else, someone else is tweaking the experiment and the variables before we even get a chance to run the experiment, which again, I think should make us think about is it possible that it's because it's trying to lead us in a certain direction? In other words, this kind of data should make us question this sense that life is purposeless and that the cosmos is just the random firing of some processes that have no direction and there's no intention behind the cosmos at all. These are the kinds of questions I think we should be asking. I also wanted to bring into mind, uh, bring into the conversation, speaking of psi phenomena, one thing that's really interesting is we do see some of that sometimes where we see almost like a pushback from the cosmos when we even employ certain psychic capacities. So to give you an example, one of the things been, that's been tried and I think even Hal Putoff and, and some people at SRI uh, worked on some precognition experiments and they actually, Russell Targ was another one, I think, and they would actually invest in the stock market based on these precognitive senses that people would get, right? So they would identify people who had really uh, astounding capacity around psi phenomena and specifically precognition, knowing, knowing the future. And they would basically make predictions about what the stock market was going to do tomorrow or next week. And what's interesting is initially they did really, really well, right? And, um, it seemed to be working. It seemed to be that they could, you know, again, as we said before, one of the revelations of all of this phenomena is that seemingly there are no secrets in space and time whatsoever, right? So that therefore suggests that you could know what's happening on the stock market next week, right? And then get rich because of it, right? Well, what's interesting is that while initially they did do really, really well, eventually began to fall off a little bit. And that, you know, raises all sorts of questions. You know, why would that be happening? Why would you see a really robust response at first that's demonstrable and then see a fall off? There's a couple of things that came to mind or that have been suggested because of that, speaking of trying to scientifically understand that. One is that when you have strong emotional overlay, and this comes to that question you raised about some of these others and how they kind of deliberately bred themselves away from emotion, 
this would be, again, a, a positive reason why you might want to do that, is that when our emotion gets involved, like, hey, I want to get rich, man, and I don't want to lose money, right? So you've got now this emotional overlay on top of the, the clean mirror of trying to see into the future. And when that's the case, what we've seen in these experiments is that they don't go as well. That if you are trying to even psychically tune into someone that you're close to, there might be more interference because of your relational overlay than if you were looking to someone that was a complete stranger, which kind of goes against our intuition, but that seems to be what, what is borne out in the data. So, so this is interesting. And you think about even in terms of science, again, uh, there's this, uh, this phenomena called regression to the mean. So this is the notion that even if you see astounding results, it should fall back towards the average. That's basically how things remain predictable, right? We have this kind of bell curve kind of thing. So as, a, as an example here, Michael Jordan was this insanely talented basketball player, right? And he had sons who ended up being basketball players. But not surprisingly, they weren't nearly as good as their dad was because he was so above the mean that even though they were pretty good, and I think one of them managed to get into the NBA but didn't last that long, because it's it's that's what happens. You kind of have this regression to the mean. This is part of what we notice with scientific studies. So that could also be what's going on here, right? That these, these psi experiments, even to the stock market, it, it's almost like you could even argue, again, because one of the assumptions in science is that there is nothing pushing back, right? There is nothing trying to tweak the dials besides us, right? But what we might see in these kinds of situations is actually even the conscious cosmos itself saying, oh, I notice now that you're trying to impact reality in this way, there's going to be a response. And, and this can even be some new scientific fact that we can discover, actually, that we find that there's actually a kind of regression to the mean here, but it's actually not just a random process. It's actually some sort of function built into the nature of what we consider physical reality, which again, I would still say is still derivative of some deeper structure in consciousness. But these are the kind of things I think about when I think about the revelations of psi phenomena, which again, what's interesting there is we actually have been able to test it. And some interesting and intriguing avenues I think we should pursue further uh, have come about as a result. Mm. Yeah, that a dynamic response uh, to our our actions uh, for a purpose that we may be blind to, or or becoming slowly aware of, right? That's uh, what seems to be at work. Then it is responsive, um, and that that is what you would expect if you're engaged with an intelligence uh, in the way that we seem to be. Then that's exactly what you would expect to see. You know, you would see this kind of, uh, you know, dynamism at work, just like you do in a relationship that you have with anyone that, you know, you're putting forth an idea, you're behaving in a certain way, uh, they're trying to create a relationship with you. And, you know, as a result, you know, they're providing feedback and, and that feedback sometimes can be very positive. Hey, you know, the way you handled this or did this was great. I appreciate that. Do that. Do that. Do more of that. That's good for for our relationship together. Um, hey, what you did there wasn't great. Um, if you you know would not do that again, that would be that'd be great. So our relationship can 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 grow and change in ways that are you know that, that, that benefit us. Um, yeah, I mean, that, I think we we see a lot of evidence for that. Um, you know, I wondered too if like as we kind of come to the close of this episode, maybe we can touch on just a little bit and 
and quite frankly, this might be an entire episode on its own, but you know, and that that is the 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 emerging power of AI, and uh, you know, as a tool, uh, as something that we can use to uh, you know, kind of gain more mastery of the world. Do you think that it will? Like, what is AI's potential in your mind for exposing? Uh, you know, kind of what is it? What does it play here? Uh, either, either, either overtly, uh, will AI, in other words, kind of uh, tell us that after scouring all this information, it's identified this giant blind spot that we didn't even know about. Uh, that's one way it might go about it, or maybe indirectly, like so, uh, AI kind of in the way it presents uh, solutions to us or whatnot might, in its in its behavior, reveal to us more about what makes us special in contrast to what it is doing. Um, and that might be a hint at, at what is out there beyond our, our current sphere of awareness. What, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great questions. And absolutely, that's that's an episode on its own. But yeah, let's, let's touch on some of the highlights. You know, one thing that has occurred to me recently, and I've talked to different people about this, you know, I was a guest on uh, a show that J. Christopher King hosts on the Experiencer Group community, and one of the questions that came up was about AI. And I mentioned how we see some interesting parallels, I would suggest, between what you might call ancient technologies like tarot and what we see with AI. So I want to remind people that when I was at the Monroe Institute for this private retreat last year, one of the things we did was we went out into a meadow and we practiced CE5, right? We sort of joined uh, together in this intention that craft or phenomena would manifest in the sky, right? And while we were doing that, there's some staff at the Monroe Institute that are ongoingly applying the scientific method. They're trying to test things and present hypotheses and see if they can get reproducible results, if they can see if their hypothesis is borne out as true. So one of the things we did was, or they did, was the one of these guys that's an employee at the Monroe Institute set up a random number generator on the side of the hill next to the meadow where we were conducting the C5 experiment. And what's very interesting is that not only did, sure enough, the random number gener generator become less random at the time when the phenomena showed up in the sky, because as I've mentioned before, on each night we did see things and even caught it on film, but it even went less random when we were just implying, uh, applying intention, shared intention, right? So we were developing this coherent field of intentionality with our consciousness alone, right? And that alone was enough to show an impact in the results of this random number generator. Now, again, according to physicalism, that should not happen. There is no mechanism within the understanding of physicalism that could impact that in any way. You know, my, my consciousness is supposed to be within my skull, yours within your skull, and certainly not only are those not supposed to mix if we're sitting in a meadow uh, in the middle of the night trying to manifest craft in the sky, but it's certainly not supposed to like be able to travel across the grass up the hill and somehow impact the random number generator. And yes, that, and the, that's what we see. So clearly this is saying something about our notions of reality are, are incomplete, perhaps even woefully misguided. But getting back to what I was saying about ancient technologies like tarot, and I, I call it a technology, I want to be clear about this, because some people might look at that, again, with a, a scientific mindset, right? a typical 
um, rationalist perspective and say, I mean, this is people just reading into things, right? I mean, they they randomly pull up cards and they they use their subconscious to perhaps come up with some interesting ideas about what universe is trying to tell them. And I used to believe that when I had kind of a rationalist perspective. But what I've actually found since I've changed my perspective on reality, which is interesting in itself, because as you change your perspective on reality, you begin to notice it seems to be feeding back to you some different results or different experiences of reality. As we said before, when your worldview changes, not only do you see the world differently, but the world is different. So with Tarot, what I would suggest is actually happening is somehow we are interacting with the conscious cosmos itself, and it is actually giving us some kind of information, just like we talked about in the channeling episode, right? Information that seems to be coming in beyond the parameters of space-time and without being obtained through our usual five senses. So we already see that happening with Tarot. I think anybody who really has spent a lot of time with Tarot and those kinds of ancient technologies, they see that actually somehow they're getting valid information that's useful, that's that's applicable. The same way that a shaman going out and figuring out which directions we go to find food tomorrow, right? They got really actionable information. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it, right? And they kept the, the tribe alive. Well, I would suggest in the same way that somehow AI, we, we see evidence already that AI is also somehow interacting with the conscious cosmos and that this may even be part of why some of the results are coming out the way they are. So in the same way that intentionality and consciousness can impact a random number generator, so too can consciousness impact AI and the algorithms, but not necessarily just human consciousness. This is the point, right? We may now have developed tools that are at such a level that now these other intelligences can say, okay, now we can enter the fray and through some of this AI direct, it's another another mechanism by which our civilization can be shaped, right? Going by the control system hypothesis again. And that, that could be good or bad, right? Depending on which intelligence it is. But, you know, these, these are the things to keep in mind in terms of AI not just being necessarily pure computational power, right? It's, it's also about how, is, how does consciousness interface with technology, right? So yeah, these are things to keep in mind. And, you know, in terms of your other question around, will we see some sort of distinction finally and actually see that AI will never be conscious the way that we are? I would suggest, yes, absolutely. And people like Bernardo Castro have talked a lot about this and he's a computer scientist who also was a physicist who worked at CERN, so he knows what he's talking about. And what he sees is that we can throw as much computational power as we want at, at this, but that alone is not going to create conscious experience in the same way that we, we experience it. Mm. Yeah, and I think that would be quite profound, right? Something that um, is so incredibly capable, yet is clearly still distinguishable from the human experience. Uh, and I think, you know, kind of landing where we probably should, and that's even more the importance of using one's discernment uh, when approaching the, this topic or using these tools or uh, trying to digest the information that is happening with respect to additional uh, disclosure elements that are, that are coming forward. Uh, you know, taking that broad view, uh, feeling out. You know what is that? What is at play here? 
and it, what is on the surface and what is at, at what is deeper than the surface level. Because I think the temptation, and, and I think you and I, we talk about this often, you know, we see this because we see this every day. The temptation is to really just, I think, consume that surface layer of, of, uh, of excitement or uh, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're hungering and hankering for uh, and, and let that be the entire meal, right? And, and, and that, that's, that's missing the point, that there is a, a much more satisfying, meaningful, deeper layer at work here that, that is, is the entire ballgame, right? It is, it is the issue. Um, that we can't be distracted by, in some ways, the you know the pyrotechnics here. We have to be focused on the bigger picture, and that being you know sort of where we are as an individual in our own development, but also where we are as a society in our society's development. Because we we ultimately uh, we can't take a shortcut. We have to get uh, to a place where 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 we can coexist with reality as it is not how we just think it happens to be. We can't approach the, the, that reality with the, with the way we've approached reality that thus far, which has led to immense amount of suffering and destruction. Uh, we, we can't apply the same tools that, that we used to, to use uh, because that would be foolish. You know, we just, there's only so much we can, we can do if, if we continue on the path that we're on. We have to look at this from a different perspective, a broader perspective that enriches the whole. And uh, it's my hope that that these revelations will help us do that, that will catalyze that kind of change. But that only happens if we're willing to, to let it do that and not get caught up in the light show. Absolutely. And I think in, in conclusion, I would hear, I would say here in terms of our overarching question here about what will this produce when science engages with the phenomena, right? What, how will this change ufology? How will this change the world? I would say we have the opportunity that both could happen in really positive ways. That's my hope. That's the best case scenario where, yes, people within ufology and experiencers and the whole crew can learn from bringing in academics and applying academic rigor to some of our experiences and some of the data. And again, maybe with the aid of AI, we can pull out connections and correlations and um, important connection points that we did not see, nor could maybe we ever see with our with human eyes, right? That's one of the advantages with AI is it sometimes poses questions that would never occur to us, right? So that's exciting in terms of what might come out from this. And this is where ufology and experiencers and the, the UFO Twitter crowd can benefit from academia getting involved. But I would also say then in the best case scenario, this also becomes a journey for those scientists, for those academics coming in, that ideally they come in and they begin to recognize as they really wrestle with the data, that not only is it substantial and it, something really is going on here and there is a there there, but furthermore, that it manifests in such a way as to show how our current model of reality is untenable. It adds to the weight already gathering suggesting that physicalism is not a tenable model. And hopefully that begins to get us to ask questions as a collective about how might consciousness be the substrate for what we perceive as the physical world. And if it's true that perhaps even what I was saying earlier is true, that the entire construct is set up to serve consciousness development, then perhaps that will wake us up just in time to begin to reconsider not only how we move forward with technology, but even how Technology might be ultimately not just something that benefits us, but that actually could undermine our development 
And these are the kinds of questions we should be wrestling with. And perhaps this is all happening now. As, as scary as it sometimes seems, all of the things we talked about earlier that are co-arising right now, it may also be that just in time, we have that kind of wake-up call that we need because we really are at the precipice. Mm, well said. Well, thank you for listening, joining us on this journey uh, this evening. Uh, it's always a pleasure to interact with our audience and and read your comments and get, get your feedback. Uh, so thank you for being a part of uh, the Luminal Frames uh, listening community. It means a great deal to us, uh, and we look forward to uh, future conversations that arise. May the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure waits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames. <laughs>